It's Gia Tolentino Day on the pod. We talk about her luminous new book of essays, Trick Mirror, the wonder that is Shipley's Donuts, what perfect beauty a good middle grade novel is, and the best answer I've heard to the question of who gets to tell whose story. In short, it was as delicious as our chocolate-covered donuts. This is the penultimate episode of season four. Please enjoy it responsibly. Because I went all the way to Shipley's and only bought one donut. Are you serious? Oh, God. No. Yeah, she, she's like, one donut, please. One. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You mean it's a dozen? Like, you like mean one on dozen? No, just one. Just one you donut. You would be like the first person Thank in history you. to ever go in and buy one donut. <laughs> yes, exactly. I have enough money for one donut <laughs> and one donut only. If I could write, like one thing when I was in my MFA, it, it was like sometimes people would say this like snobby shit. They were like, you know, like, oh, what, maybe I'll just crank out, you know, fucking dis- like dystopian YA with a strong female protagonist. And I'm like, listen, Worst. bitch, like if you, could, if you could do that, you should be doing that, you know? I know. Well, I should have like, I, I did the ancestry thing and I like really regret it. You know, like this was like, I was like, why did I just turn over this, my fucking DNA, you know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Like I really, really, I really regret it. I didn't learn anything new, you know? <laughs> I'm Jessica Cole. I'm Fulu. I'm Kate Martin-Williams. And this is Effing Shakespeare. Bye writers. For writers. Today is an auspicious day at the pod. We have Shipley's Donuts, it's Britney Spears' birthday, all in honor of Gia Tolentino <laughs> being on the show. She's a staff writer for The New Yorker, and if you haven't been living in a cave, you know she's been on an international press tour for her first book, Trick Mirror, which she documented with her signature mix of we and disbelief echoing the roller coaster of gratitude and surreality we all ricochet between several trillion times a day when we're not reeling from helplessness and despair. In every piece of her writing, Gia comes across just as baffled, heartbroken, and furious as the rest of us about the unjust forces we've unthinkingly given power to. But because she leads with a genuine desire to understand rather than a hastily applied authority, reading her feels like eavesdropping on a mind at work. Whether she's documenting her fucking Tatcha skincare addiction or peeling back the lycra layers of ideal womanhood, Tolentino creates a philosophy of curiosity that implicates herself, not to be coy or pseudo anything, but because she knows and admits that even hard work, luck, and success don't guarantee a reprieve from even a reluctant examination of contemporary culture. Reading Gia is self-care in the grandest and the most basic sense. She polishes the grimy windows of modern life so we can see into it and out from it. And with our sharpened perceptions, we come away with more compassion for ourselves and even occasionally for others. Thank you so much for being here, Gia, and welcome. That was so nice. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It's true. (laughs) I wanted to start out a little bit today by maybe seeing if you'd be willing to track or trace kind of parts of your earlier self from your Christian private school cheerleader upbringing who longed for her summertime cutoffs 
to your current world, sort of soaring about the planet, the New York Times bestseller, and, and your amazing career trajectory? I think that I have changed kind of like, as I wrote about this in the reality TV essay, which is it's mm-hmm. about me skipping a month of my senior year of high school to film this reality TV show in Puerto Rico. And I, I've always, like my parents have always told me that I've been like the exact same since I was little. <laughs> and the things that I, and as I was sort of fact checking this book against my journals or parts of the book against my journals, I was worried about the exact same things when I was in middle school or not, you know, the exact same things, but I could very much recognize certain obsessions or anxieties or whatever. And certainly, but yeah, anyway, like I still spend my entire summer in cutoffs. I'm still, I think, pretty, like, despite the fact that I'm like always thinking about death, I think that I'm pretty happy-go-lucky. Like I'm, I'm still, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm still like have, like, I'm still very enthusiastic. Like I'm still really basic. Like I played beer pong on Saturday. Like I, <laughs> you know, like I, I'm still, I'm still pretty much, I'm, I'm not too, I feel like the, in a lot of ways, extremely similar to, you know, even the version of me that was like 16 and on that reality show. Um, you know, the difference is that I have a different, like the main difference is that I'm just no longer kind of, like when I was, when I was in high school, I think I was chafing against things that I didn't have the vocabulary to describe yet. You know, right, my instincts right. were the same, but I didn't have, you know, I'd never heard the word feminism. I'd never like met a liberal person, you know, <laughs> like I, um, I, my world feels uh, like so, so, so like so much bigger in such a, you know, kind of cosmically lucky way. Mm-hmm. But the, but the like foundation cast. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, like, I, I think, you know, a, a lot of this book is about how the self is a thing that's constructed in, re- in reference to, mm-hmm. to structures of power, right, and to cultural systems. And I think maybe one of the reasons that I'm attracted to that idea is because I'm a good test case because I'm a pretty fixed self. Like, I'm, a, you know, I'm really malleable, but I'm not that malleable. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. Would you read um, an excerpt from either Trickmere or whatever you want? We love it all, just so readers, listeners can, if they haven't somehow either listened to your audiobook or read your. Okay. Um, I'll read a thing from the internet essay. Mass media always determines the shape of politics and culture. The Bush era is inextricable from the failures of cable news. The executive overreaches of the Obama years were obscured by the internet's magnification of personality and performance. Trump's rise to power is inseparable from the existence of social networks that must continually aggravate their users in order to continue making money. But lately I've been wondering how everything got so intimately terrible and why exactly we keep playing along. How did a huge number of people begin spending the bulk of our disappearing free time in an openly torturous environment? How did the internet get so bad, so confining, so inescapably personal, so politically determinative, And why are all these questions asking the same thing? I'll admit that I'm not sure that this inquiry is even productive. The internet reminds us on a daily basis that it is not at all rewarding to become aware of problems that you have no reasonable hope of solving. And more important, the internet already is what it is. It has already become the central organ of contemporary life. 
it has already rewired the brains of its users, returning us to a state of primitive hyper-awareness and distraction, while overloading us with much more sensory input than was ever possible in primitive times. It has already built an ecosystem that runs on exploiting attention and monetizing the self. Even if you avoid the internet completely, like Partner does, he thought TBT meant truth be told for ages, you still <laughs> live in the world that this internet has created, a world in which selfhood has become capitalism's last natural resource, a world whose terms are set by centralized platforms that have deliberately established themselves as near impossible to regulate or control. But the internet is also in large part inextricable from life's pleasures. Our friends, our families, our communities, our pursuits of happiness, and sometimes if we're lucky, our work. In part out of a desire to preserve what's worthwhile from the decay that surrounds it, I've been thinking about five intersecting problems. First, how the internet is built to distend our sense of identity. Second, how it encourages us to overvalue our opinions. Third, how it maximizes our sense of opposition. Fourth, how it cheapens our understanding of solidarity. And finally, how it destroys our sense of scale. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what else do we need, really? <laughs> so I studied with Pam Houston at Davis. And while she totally stands by her first book, Cowboys Are My Weakness, and made her famous, I think it still holds up. All these years later, there were lines that she still says that she wants to break into bookstores and like black Sharpie over because they make her cringe. And this is fiction, not even like, you know, she can hide behind the fact that it's, you know, fiction, but there are still lines like that. Given that, you know, you write pretty openly about like why you wrote the book in 2017, like the photo negative of a lot of what you say could also be true. Yeah. Are there any lines, not necessarily in Trick Mirror, but maybe elsewhere in earlier essays that you'd like to reverse or believe now to be different? I think that, you know, eventually I will certainly feel that way probably about everything that I write. And I, I tend not to revisit things that I've written before. Like once I write about things when I can't stop thinking about them, mm -hmm. you know, where they're like really obsessing me. And then once I'm done writing about them, I'm like, I'm done. You know, it's, it's like it's from writing is really like a like a self-help mechanism for me to clear my brain out. And so I don't I kind of deliberately don't look at any most of anything that I've done like I've I've not re I've not reread the book you know since I wrote it really mm -hmm. and so I one answer is that I don't know but probably <laughs> the other is that like I think I think that you know in my personality I'm really I'm both uh pretty reckless and pretty instinctively um cautious like I think like, let's take, I mean, another thing that I write about in the book is my enthusiasm for recreational drugs. Like, I mm -hmm. still, um, like, I naturally tend towards uh, a maximum of expression that still stops short of a line. You know, like, <laughs> I, like, I love drugs, but I, like, have rarely had, like, I'd, I've never had a scary experience on them. I've never felt truly out of control. And I think it's the same with like with the internet. Like I, I think that I have a, a line for self-expression that's far beyond what other people would tolerate for their own self. Yes. But I also have a pretty instinctive stopping point. Like there's caution built into that as a built-in guardrail. And I yeah. think that's part of maybe like I started out writing on the internet. I started out understanding that you were sort of liable to public opinion and so you had to find a way in writing to be both say everything that you wanted, but also be very careful about it. Right. Like I um, like I show I show a lot of myself, but it's always for a 
point and if and the point if, if it's in service of a point and I believe in the point then I don't really worry about it mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. and then I don't and then I just don't write about myself otherwise you know you don't have like something to like push down if if it's wrong or whatever there's not really a lot of wrong because you're just trying to figure something out yeah and you know and that can be a defense mechanism right but it's also how I really really think you know like I think that's one of the reasons that I've been able to navigate the internet is that and maybe this has something to do with growing up in Houston like around people who I often just fully disagreed with but you know that, that they were the totality of my world like like I think that there was a why I wrote about this at Jezebel in like 2014 or something where there was this there was this period where especially on the women's internet or on the feminist internet like if disagreement was seen as you know I mean it's a thing that's been with feminism since like the Seneca since like Seneca Falls but like you know pot- disagreement is seen as potentially fatal to the movement or whatever mm-hmm. and for me it was like well right. disagreement's just like the supernatural like it's just the way everything should be you know like it's it's completely completely reasonable to me that someone would read something that I write and be like I don't like her and I think she's wrong like that's that seems like people should feel like that because the potential of disagreement or dislike does not really bother me unless it comes from like my editor or my best friend, you know? (laughs) Right. Do you feel like that's changed having been so far removed for as long as you have been now from places like Houston, where we rub up against, you know, like I was sitting at my Thanksgiving dinner table and it was very conservative crew Mm -hmm. and they're, you know, we're sort of the outlier in that space, but I can just as easily move from, you know, my sort of central family into Brazos bookstore and hang out with a bunch of like-minded folks. Has that changed or affected the way you write, you know, centered at the New Yorker now where liberalism is the going rate? The kind of emails that I feel most rewarded by are the, are surprising ones. Like I will occasionally, well, I mean, ever since I started writing, I've been writing in liberal environments. Mm -hmm. I mean, there aren't there's a, a genuinely limited number of outlets that are like literary and also conservative. I mean, I can hardly think of any. Yeah. And so in that way, I've always been conscious of, and this was something that I thought about a lot when I moved to Jezebel and moved to New York. Uh, Cause I lived in Michigan after I did the Peace Corps and then I moved back to Texas and then I moved to Michigan for grad school. And then I moved to New York and I was really conscious. Like I, I have always disliked the, and, and I slipped into this tone, I think, leading up to the 2016 election. And I've been kind of on guard on it. I'm trying to be on guard on it, but sometimes you slip up. Like, I, sure. it is really unsatisfying to read pieces that are written with the expectation of agreement. Mm-hmm. I find it really unsatisfying as a reader. And I hope I find writing that way unsatisfying as a writer. Mm-hmm. So I, I have been aware of, like, you know, what's the use? I mean, at Jezebel, I would always think about the most useful thing you could do here is push back against something in you know, mainstream feminism that you dislike, right? Like that's right. it. And I think the pieces that I liked, some of the pieces that I liked the most from there were pieces where I did that. But, you know, at the same time, like my Thanksgiving dinner, like I, I was I was hanging out with with some Trump voters, you know, like I, I was in New York. Like it's, yeah. it's not. You can find people to chafe up. Ch- chafe yeah. Anywhere. And it doesn't, and it doesn't like, it doesn't really, it doesn't really bother me, you know, like, yeah. yeah. Jess and I really, really appreciated your piece that you did with Rivka Galchin at the Books Are Magic bookstore. 
I think it was for the New Yorker radio hour. Mm, on kids' books. Yeah, it was so great. And we both have kids. And How old are y'all's kids? Eight. Mine's eight. Cool. So I have t- uh, 12, nine, and three. Whoa, cool. Yeah. And so I love that line that Rivka said about the, the characters in kids' books feel like they're having a greater capacity for adventure than the one you're having. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I feel like that's your life right now, <laughs> um, living the dream that every precocious protagonist from a children's book um, dreams of, from Matilda to Milo. So I want to know the premise of the children's the two best book. Ones. No, no, the one that you're going to write, because <laughs> I need for you to write one. Yeah. I, you know, it's so hard. If I could write a kid's book, if I could write like that middle grade, you know, because yeah, as I've, I've, I have a well-documented fondness for both children's protagonists, like I wrote about at one point in Trick Mirror, but I think I talked about in that piece, which is like, they're so adventurous. And then, you know, they grow up and they get, especially with girls, they get depressed and then they get bitter. And it, it's just, you know, I still like I, one, one of the essays in the book came out of my trying to figure out why I only ever identified with children's protagonists and like, if that's regressive or childish or if there was a you know a deeper reason which I think there is but mm-hmm. if I could write like one thing when I was in my MFA it, it was like sometimes people would say this like snobby shit they were like you know like oh what well, maybe I'll just crank out you know fucking just dy- like dystopian YA with a strong female protagonist <laughs> and I'm like listen worst. bitch like if you could if you could do that you should be doing that you know like so I don't think I'm good enough at plot to write well I'm not good enough at plot to write YA and from a craft point of view, they're so clear and so vivid. Like the, the use of language is so economical, like really just like clean lines. Like they're really well plotted. I, I just appreciate them as reminders of how clear you can be and like kind of weightless. But listen, if I could write one of those books, you better believe. Like if I could write like a Western game, oh my God. But I but it really takes, I mean, I would be interested in trying it at some point. Because um, I'm going to push back about the plot thing because I think if you can plot a personal essay the way that you do, mm-hmm. I think there's some translation there. Well, I appreciate the vote of confidence. <laughs> I, But I feel, you know, it's one of those, remember when on the internet, everyone was talking about like imposter syndrome for a while. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I don't have it. Like I, I've been overcon. I've I've been pretty confident since I was little. You know, arguably overconfident. And when I think I can't do something, I feel like I'm almost always right. <laughs> and so maybe one of these days, like you know, maybe maybe I'll have kids and have a better understanding for, you know, the kind of magic sort of nebula formation that's happening in kids' heads, mm-hmm. you know, and in their like hearts. But I uh, I genuinely feel right now that like what those books like what those books have, like they're, they're an ability that, I mean, even when I was writing fiction, you know, like what would have tried to position itself as literary fiction, (laughs) it's, it was never as natural, you know, like invention is not to me as natural, like description to me is is easy because it's like, you're always, it's just (laughs) something that exists and you're just trying to be very clear about it. But fiction is like, you know, it's magic. It's something else, which is why I love love it so much but yeah I still totally like it's it's a big um like a real indulgence for me like is to just get super high and like read like the phantom toll booth again and it's because it's just so good have you read Raimi Nightingale by Kate DiCamillo Kate DiCamillo 
I'll put it. I'm going to oh write it down. Oh my God. It's right your now. next, like, it's right. your next. Right. I'm literally writing it down right now. Honestly, like reading middle grade books to your children is the number one reason to have child children. <laughs> <laughs> number one. It's have you guys, <laughs> have you guys read When You Reach Me? No. No. So this is, this is like, I feel like you, I feel like you, you guys would love it. It's so this is one of those books that I think it won the Newberry in 2002 or something. Oh. Maybe, maybe a little bit later. It's, it's really, it's like mm-hmm. Harriet the Spy across for the wrinkle in time. It's really, oh really good. Yeah. Oh it's a really good like mother daughter relationship too. Like one of the best. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Okay. I'll check that one out. Wait, sorry. What was the one that you recommended? Ramy Nightingale. It's R-A-Y-M-I-E Nightingale. Cool. And it's by Kate cool. Camello. She wrote The Tale of Despero. And I mean, everything mm. she writes is good. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I've read, I think I've, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, wrote it down. Thank you. It's good stuff. I, this, this kind of goes with what you were just saying is that I read C.J. Hauser's The Crane Wife, your essay, The Cult of Difficult Women. And mm-hmm. I was reading Harriet the Spy at the same time mm-hmm. with my kid at night, you know? Yeah. Isn't it so funny when all that stuff just emerges oh from like what God. you're reading? It was like, you suddenly I, realize you're maybe thinking about something like subconsciously. Yeah. Like so I mean, that is an essay, Kate. Like you no, should it write totally that. Is. Yeah. I, could, I was thinking about it for weeks. I could not stop thinking about yeah, this Yeah, you should write about that. That, yeah. that was happening at the same time that I was like, been married 14 years. I have three kids. I don't know any more about parenting than I did when I started. You know, I feel like yeah. I'm very thoughtful about it, but it's also fucking fraught most of the time. Totally, totally. How do you not like feel like you know more than you did at the, than you, you know, than you did at the beginning? And this was all happening at the same time and it was like such a great convergence. But I want to do like curated book lists for life experiences. Yeah, yeah, totally. Has that happened to you where there's like two yeah. things going on? Well, well, so before, there's also this piece in the Times Magazine that Gideon Lewis Krauss just wrote, and it's about that video, that documentary series, Seven Up, mm-hmm. where that guy goes back, right, every seven years to- right, Another 63. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this piece is so like, mm. like I, it, it made me think, and like, and he has a young kid and like, it, it just- I, I would imagine seven years and does what in re-interviews this same. So he's like in his late seventies or maybe early eighties and the oldest of, and, and these children that he first started interviewing at age seven are 63. Oh shit. So it's like a real, you know, and I was thinking about how I assume parenthood, it's this like such an intense lens on like just the total, <laughs> the total like failure of our predictive powers you know yes. <laughs> like you know like we like and just how much we want to think that we can know the future but you know I'm sure having or fucking know yourself like yeah exactly right 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 and, and then like how yeah you can't predict you can't like game out with patterns like you just gotta yeah and, and like <laughs> yeah. I think th- this series I was just thinking about it from the way because I've never seen the series but yeah like Anyway, because like the, the documentarian has like a very interesting like near parental relationship I'm to the sure. kids, but now you know it's it's interesting. But oh. I actually I'm I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer in general, and I keep I I'm like a, I feel like it's like with food, like you always it's like so much more satisfying to eat what you're in the mood for than just like eat something because it's there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I feel that way with books. Like I I really try to match. Like whenever I start decide to pick up a new book, I'm like really trying to lean into like, what do I want to read next? Like, what do I really want to read next? The same way that I am with like lunch, you know? (laughs) And, um, and I think that it's interesting, like, uh, sometimes if you are not monitoring your moods, you'll still 
like I keep a list of what I'm re- what I've read and like I'll see like subconsciously I was trying to learn something about something or I was drawn to something yeah. and I recently was traveling and I I was I was like yeah, I was traveling for two weeks and I was it was like this heaven because I was in Australia and the Philippines and so the whole time I was awake everyone was asleep in the States basically. So I was like totally un, like no one could email me, you know, and just like that. Oh my God. You know, (laughs) like, like it was just like the psychic freedom. And I was reading so much because I was traveling so much. I had lots of like uninterrupted plane time, like lots of like 10 to 19 hour flights. And it was just a lot of reading time. And I realized that like everything I read, I had brought all these books that were about the same things. Like I read, the Yellow House by Sarah Broom, which oh. is so good, and and Carmen Ria Machado's new memoir, yeah. which is also fucking incredible. I read the Annihilation trilogy, which was really good, and I read the Supernova Era, which is an old book by Sushin Liu that's just been translated again, and mm-hmm. then um, this book called Animate Planet, which is like academic book about our sort of kind of invisible forms of and the entanglement of like our physical body with the natural world that we are destroying. And it was like, and all of those books were making me think about, I'd, I'd been wanting new ways to think about environments and, you know, radical changes and emergencies and ways of kind of adjusting and taking care of each other in degraded circumstances. And yeah, I think that like one of the, one of the, pleasures that maybe you can only get if you read a lot is that pleasure of matching what you're reading to your mood very carefully. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and it's like one of the reasons that I keep a lot of books around so that when I finish a book and I'm trying to read something, I can usually I can usually find something that like it's like the thing that I want to read. Like that's like yes. yeah, it's yeah. Like, what a what a pleasure. And then don't totally. you feel more connected to that book than if you had read it at some other time that maybe. Yeah. And I'm right such a believer, like if you're not feeling a book, like it's like, I always just put it down and maybe 10 years later, it'll be good. You know, like totally, it'll be right. right for you. Like it's like, it's like life is too short to try to push yourself through a book that you're not feeling. Like it's like, you should always be super. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like I, 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 that's why I always read on flights instead of watching movies. Like unless I'm really hungover is like, um, <laughs> like for me, I can always find a book that, you know, I kind of want to read and like, it's perfect for my mood. And yeah. I don't really feel that way about movies, you know, totally. yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Or, like TV shows, but it's like books. There's just always an unlimited amount of things that I'm like, yeah, I could read that, you know. I feel really totally. sad a lot of times for people who don't have Jessica as their best friend, which is <laughs> my position because she's the perfect person to go to when you when you don't know the next thing to read and you have like a trip planned or something. Yeah, I'm like, like a book doctor. You, like I tell, you really should tell make it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You should get paid for it, I think. Yeah, I should. It's like my one truly yeah. marketable skill. <laughs> That's an incredibly marketable skill. <laughs> so you mentioned a book you read in translation, um, which reminds me about this thing that I want to ask you about your time in the Peace Corps. So my parents start out their marriage in the Peace Corps in Togo and they credit that for the fact that they had a 50 plus year marriage and, um, and all of my like family mythology is, yeah, it was really cool. They were, they were there in like the the first, the first. Yeah. That must've been wild. It was wild. Yeah. Great stories. I I sometimes don't know where like 
it's like I feel like I've actually been there or that I actually like was conceived there when I totally wasn't and <laughs> yeah. to lie and tell people that I was. Yeah, yeah. Because and I think it's because I there's like almost some truth in that, even though it's factually incorrect. You totally. Know? Yeah, no, I um, totally understand. <laughs> so so okay, and then I started thinking about sensitivity readership and and the fact that, you know, how are we or me, let's just say, how am I how do I get to know about places in the world that I probably won't ever go to? There yeah. probably aren't books in translation unless I hear from, you know, my parents about Togo yeah. and you about Kyrgyzstan because, you know, and then, yeah. So I don't know how to like manage all that with, you know, who gets yeah. to tell what stories and, and also cause it was a traumatic experience because I don't want to force you to, to write on something, but. Yeah, I just don't understand. I, I want to like yeah. do that with you. Well, I I have really like, um, I have really shied away from. The, I wrote. I worked on a novel for five years and and spiked it. Like it's in a drawer. I'll never look at it again. Most because I didn't think it was good. But one of the reasons that I didn't think it was good or good enough was it was mostly it was mostly set in Kyrgyzstan because it was an incredibly important experience in my life and right. the country was so fucking interesting and beautiful and like wild and like I you know I'm still in very close touch with the woman that I worked with there and like mm-hmm. you know close to my peace corps friends and all, all this stuff but you know like it was the whole time I was writing the book, I was like, it's going to have to be really good for you to be able to do this. You know, mm-hmm. like, I think anyone can write about anyone, but it's, but the the greater the distance between you and the person you're writing about, the better the book has to be mm-hmm. to justify its own existence. Mm-hmm. And so I think that like, yeah, I mean, I actually, after I, I tweeted a picture of all those books that I had read on that trip and someone replied and they were like, don't you think Annihilation is pro- problematic because Jeff Vandermeer writes from the point of view of a woman? And I was just like, come on, like, you know, <laughs> like, that's like, I, I'm really not a believer you know, the no. whole point of literature is that it teaches you to inhabit other people's lives, yeah. like you're saying. And, but I do think that there is a responsibility to be better and better the greater the distances between you and your subject. Mm-hmm. And mine was not good enough to clear that bar. And so, I mean, one of the reasons I like, that is one reason that I, I mean, I write about Kyrgyzstan a little in this book, but it's, you know, it's touchy, especially because, you know, Peace Corps in general, like it's it's full of well-meaning people. I love it as a program. Right. It's also like pretty imperialistic, yeah. you know, like I, you know, I was in Peace Corps and I was like, what the fuck? Like this, <laughs> like they barely cost our taxpayers any money to, you know, like pay for my plane ticket over there. But I was like, honestly, we should like, I was like the entire tiny, tiny budget of this, this program full of hardworking people should just be converted into direct basic income programs in like one country. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, we should just give, give people money. I was, I was so conscious in the Peace Corps that like the best use I could be is just a, mo- a money conduit for resources that these people that I live with should already have, you know? Right. Right. But I think like, you know, Kyrgyzstan would have been a pretty easy, like it, it could have fit into the theme of this book pretty easily. Like, you know, the idea, like Peace Corps itself, it's a, it's a, it's a ripe, it's a ripe situation for self-delusion. But I am not sure that I am capable of writing well enough about it yet. Like, it's sort of like I think, I think I'm gonna have to wait, or if I do it at all. Because also, one thing about when I was there, I tried not writing, like not keeping a notebook for the first for the first time maybe in my life because I was like 
maybe this will be a way of decentering yourself from your everyday experience, you know, uh-huh. like maybe it felt sort of monstrous to be continually being like, what happened to me today, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, just, and I am always trying to let, like I'm really attracted to transience and like ephemerality at the same time that I'm always trying to write everything down. And I was like, okay, <laughs> here's a chance to just like let every, let the world just wash over you, mm-hmm. you know, be like this empty vessel. Like it was just sort of, I was trying to sort of submit and be transparent and whatever. And it might've been the thing that made me go a little crazy, you know, like I probably should have written stuff down the whole time. Yeah. Maybe one of the reasons that I have not written about it much is that I don't trust my own memory now, you know, because mm-hmm. with this book, I could go back and fact check against my notebooks. Right. And with Peace Corps, the farther I get from it, the less I trust whatever narrative I've put on it. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it is a really, it's a real conundrum because it's like, I mean, we're, we're definitely seeing now there, I mean, I wonder if like, like when we'll get like a, you know, like a, my sister of the serial killer out of Togo, you know, like there's, <laughs> there's definitely, there's definitely like people that are writing, you know, it's just, are the path, the pathways just aren't as nearly as open for us to read these things, but I don't know, maybe soon they will be. That would be great, right? Yeah. That's true. I mean, Google, Google Translate, maybe will be like... Yeah. <laughs> meanwhile, yeah. Meanwhile, people at University of Rochester are like, or open letter books are like, no, we just need more books in translation. God damn it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's just, yeah. I mean, I know I'm a better, more interesting person because I like know Togolese stories besides, you know, otherwise I would just, I would be such a boring white Jewish girl. So. Yeah, I mean, I love I love reading stuff in translation. I've read a lot of stuff in translation this year because it like it's such a nice reminder that so much of our world is slanted towards kind of like this like monetized self-magnification and mm-hmm. and I think that reading stuff in translation is just like a perfect way to remember that your corner of the world is like, yeah, like your individual life. It's not that important. And like, you know, mm-hmm. there's so many, like, there are just so many worlds that we have no idea about. And, and even just like the cadences of literature and translation will shake me out of, right. you know, like that, that feeling of like feeling predictable and like, you know, yeah. Well, we want to be conscious of your time. Do you have a few more minutes to just play our yep. last little our last little esoterica category game? Yeah. Okay, so what was the best thing about growing up in Houston and what was the worst? I don't know if I could, I mean, like, you know, of course, like the food. <laughs> um, you know, like the food, the music, right? Um, also, I don't know. There are a lot of, like, even the, like the worst probably is also the best. Like the, I think that the worst, and it's not, Houston specific, but it's my specific experience and my, you know, specific megachurch school that like, I lived my whole life in this super cloistered environment that I didn't fit into, which of just like really rich evangelical white conservatives. Mm-hmm. And it gave me like, there was like, that's such a small world full of ideas that I hate. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm so grateful for it. Because I think that I would have ended up where I am politically, no matter where I'm from, but I'm not sure yeah. that I would have an instinctive understanding and even sympathy for like, let's say like pro-life, like pro-life ideology mm-hmm. if I hadn't grown up at Second Baptist. And so I think that the things that I regret 
that I so fully, that I became so comfortable in environments that I, I really don't like are also the things that I'm so grateful for, right? Like as a reporter, I'm so much more comfortable parachuting into wherever (laughs) because for better or worse, like I got, you know, I got something that not a lot of kids from quote unquote, any sort of outside background. It's not that easy to be comfortable in a, you know, country club full of people that are richer than you will ever even understand, you know? And and I got comfortable in those environments. And I, I think that part of my soul degraded in doing so, but also, <laughs> but also I think, and part of my real like morality probably degraded in doing so, but it also taught me a lot. Like, I think that I would always like write in my journal in high school that I was like, I hope I get the good kind of entitlement out of this, you know, where you can, you can feel like you belong, Which, you know? And I think I did, yeah, but I hope, you know, <laughs> it, but it's all, you know, it's kind of bittersweet, but yeah. Um, like Houston is so... I really can't, it's like so much about the way that I think and see the world is really based on the specific experience I had there. What would be your book tour indulgence that would make traveling so much better? I got flown business class internationally to this thing conference that I spoke at in Melbourne. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> you know, like I was like, what the fuck? You know, I was like, it seems like business class seems to be getting nicer and economy seems to be getting worse, you know, like mirroring just the general. <laughs> yeah, the social of, divide. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, like a chasm now. Yeah, but I was like, damn, like. Like they gave me, they gave me a set of pajamas, you know, like the wine was good. I was like, what the hell? So it would definitely be business class, like just business class flights everywhere. <laughs> then, then the, the economy class is like chicken coops. And, yeah. Totally. You know, it's like Snowpiercer. Yeah. yeah. I know. Exactly. And, and, I, and exactly. I got to be one of those assholes at the front of the plane, yeah. you know, boarding yeah. early, like, you know, putting on my slippers and like leaning fully horizontal. <laughs> Um, like I felt like a real asshole, but honestly, like it's so tight. Like, <laughs> yeah, hell yeah. You know, it's like yeah. I can't afford business class on my own, but like, I mean, <laughs> if someone sponsors yeah. it. Yeah, if I yeah. yeah, totally. Um, okay, last but not least, I want to know what is Luna Dog's most redeeming social quality, and mm. then you have to tell us her worst. She is such a okay so she's a really really good dog for humans but a really really bad dog for other dogs so that's it like her <laughs> her worst quality is like so we found her actually she's a texas dog we we she's adopted from her texas? That's yeah she's so we big. adopted her um in dallas she's just like houston like her yeah. best qualities are her worst qualities. yeah exactly <laughs> well we we adopted her from a rescue group that had found her as a little puppy wandering on i-10 oh my god and so she was all by herself so she i think like is really like she's for we can't let her off leash because you know she'll try to fight other dogs and she's so big it's just it would be a disaster and so we like you know can never take her to dog park like we can't like let her we can't like invite a friend over with their dog like luna is a horrible dog with other doggies but (laughs) with humans she's like a giant stuffed animal like you know we'll just like curl up at your feet and like snuggle and you know like she really is like she feels like having you know, like a giant Pokemon or whatever, just at your side, <laughs> you know, it's like, like, I feel like, because she's so big, like, she makes me feel like a little kid, you know, because she's basically my size. She is and like so, a middle grade novel. I mean, she's yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I, like, I was never like a huge, like his dark materials person, but it sort of feels like that, <laughs> you know? And yeah, so, what are they called? Demons or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, Luna has a total willingness to just like play the part of a giant stuffed animal, which is her best quality. <laughs> That is absolutely her best. Have you done the yeah. DNA test? Do you know like what yeah, she's made well, of? Yeah, well, I, I'm like, 
like, why did I do that? Like, it's, I think it's not like I, after I did that, I was like, wait, what's DNA? Cause I was, I was like, it said she was like part, uh, St. Bernard, but also she was part Chihuahua. Yeah. And I was like, that's crazy. Like, that's, I was like, I, I was like, this like DNA is a racket, you know? Yeah, no, it is. It is. It is. I know well I should have like I I did the ancestry thing and I like really regret it you know like this was like I was like why did I just turn over this my fucking DNA you know (laughs) like I really really I really regret it I didn't learn anything new you know (laughs) and um and I was like damn I should have I should have learned from that the same thing See, Gia, you're gonna make a you're gonna make a perfect parent. That's exactly like, that is true. like why did I do this? Yeah. Oh, I shame and regret are so important in life. Like it's like I like the the sort of like internet era ideology that's like no shame, no regrets. It's like, no, no, no. If you're a good person, you have plenty of shame and regrets, you know? <laughs> that's right. Oh, Gia, thank you so, so much for being on the show today. Thank you, guys. It's great to talk to you. I hope you amazing. enjoy your donuts. Uh, we will. We'll, we'll send you one then. <laughs> There's no ship lease. No, but I'm definitely, I'm coming back for like two days. It's like I'm, I'm never in Houston for very long, but it's like, I'm definitely like, it's like always either where I go right when I get there, if I get there early or, you know, that like 5 a.m. driving to the airport, like Hell yeah. ship lease. I hope your trip to Houston is good to you and thanks guys. Happy everyone. holidays. Yeah, yeah you too. too. So much fun talking to you. Bye. Bye. Effing Shakespeare is a production of Bloomsday Literary in association with Houston Creative Space, hosted by Kate Martin Williams and Jessica Cole, and produced by me, Fu Lu. Do we have any special sound effects for today? Just us eating Shipley's. <laughs> She's going to be so delicious. jealous. Delicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's, there's more Is there a chocolate? In there. Yeah. No. He keeps Lady in the Tramping Life. No. Look, this is. Look, I stole it that, over here. That, I'm oh. hiding it over here. Oh, okay. I just wanted to taste it. Okay. Okay. I believe you now.